Hey folks, welcome to As If Words Could Heal The Wounds, a podcast where we dive into the stories behind the songs of my first full-length album. I'm Ben Grace, an Aussie singer-songwriter who's been messing up Americana since 2011. Over the last three months, I've talked about the origins of the tunes and dissected the production of them with an incredible cast of humans from my friend and patron Chris Roberts, tour mate and producer Paul Deemer, and partner in life and art Karen Thurston, to name just a few. Today marks the end of the first season of this podcast as we talk about the last song on the album, A Little Story. But first, a few notes before we get started. First, both myself and Story and Tune have dropped Christmas singles, so the minute you finish this episode, go find This Christmas, and maybe by next Christmas, and stream them, heart them, save them, playlist them, or even better, buy them, wherever you like to get your music. If you've already done all of those things, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes or Amazon Music. Every little bit counts. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of our very special holiday treats for you. Second, every week since the pandemic locked us down in early March, my housemates and I have been bringing joy and mayhem in the form of a show we like to call Heathen Happy Hour. Through the month of December, we are turning our attention to the holiday songs, and Thursday, December 17, we have a very special episode that we don't want you to miss. So tune into our Facebook page, facebook.com slash heathenpodcast at 7pm Pacific, that's 10pm for American East Coasters and 2pm for Australian East Coasters. I can't wait to see you in the comments. Lastly, every music release, from my album to the Christmas tunes and even this podcast, is made possible by the generosity of my patrons, or the drinking buddies as I refer to them affectionately. For about the cost of a packet of Hershey's Mint Candy Cane Kisses, every month you too can be part of the community that supports my art. Patronage is a way that artists have made their living throughout the centuries. Back in 1900 BC, when the ancient Mesoamericans first cultivated cacao plants in the tropical rainforests of Central America, a clay flute player was not being bothered in a bar to play Freebird over and over in order to make a living. So join the revolution and help me release music. Over the past two and a half years, I've released a song about every other month, and my patrons get access to demos, live music, and more. You can head to my website, that's bengracemusic.com, and click on the Patreon link. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Okay, on to today's episode and the last song on the record, A Little Story. I was born and raised in a diverse working-class suburb of Sydney, Australia. Three times a week, Sunday morning and evening, and Wednesday night, my family would pack ourselves into a bright orange Ford Katina station wagon and drive to church. In a modest brick building, we gathered with about 80 other members of the Christadelphian faith. At least half of the Riverwood Ecclesia, as we called it, were relatives of mine. For the most part, I believed my childhood was steady, reliable, and happy. Religion was the centre of our universe, and Sundays were filled to the brim with hats and hymns and the hubbub of community. A typical Sunday started at 9am with Sunday school, where we gathered to sing tunes like Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. From the Little Red Children's Hymn Book, before we divided up into classes of kids around our age. In the break after Sunday school, small groups would skip up the sidewalk to the corner store to buy lollies. That's candy for you Americans. At 11am, the whole church gathered for our memorial meeting, which consisted of about five hymns, two Bible readings, an exhortation, that's the sermon, two prayers, community announcement, and sharing of the Lord's Supper, or communion. After the service, the adults would linger to chat, and the children would tear around the outside of the building. 
Most weeks we'd invite visitors or friends home or we'd go to someone else's house for lunch, returning back to the church hall for an evening gospel proclamation lecture that was also punctuated with hymns and Bible readings. And it was scarcely ever attended by non-church folks or interested friends, as we called them. Once you hit your teenage years, you were invited to a youth supper after the evening lecture at someone else's place, and a bunch of teens would pile into cars and tear off into the suburbs for snacks and another sermon, usually shorter and by one of the older males in the youth group. Sunday, as you can see, often meant leaving home at 8.15am and not returning until 10.30pm. I can still bring nearly every detail to mind all these years later. We sat in rows of chairs, mostly in exactly the same spot year after year. Although you would graduate from the comfier cushioned pews at the back for the young families into the blue vinyl-covered individual seats up front. My family sat in the fourth row on the right side behind the organ player. My dad on the aisle with his briefcase tucked up neatly against his chair. My mum to his right rustling through her enormous handbag looking for something before the service started and my sister next to her, lost in a book. And then me, looking like a young clone of my father, with a comb over and a mini briefcase pushed under the seat of the teens in front of me. Suits, ties, hats, blouses, and long skirts, even in the height of 100 degree Sydney summers. In many ways, my upbringing was no different than any other fundamentalist religion, but it felt vastly different in an Australian culture that was very post-Christian, and even, I would say, antagonistic towards people of faith. And being Christadelphian didn't help that. I was that kid that never went to parties at school, or sex education classes, or overnight camps. If I could get past the name and didn't lose my schoolmates to cries of laughter about me being a Christian dolphin, I would have to contend with our very non-mainstream Christian beliefs. No supernatural devil, no heaven or hell, but a literal belief in Jesus returning to this world to reform it and establish a kingdom. We were defined more about what we weren't than what we were. We hated the Catholics, calling them the harlot of Babylon from the book of Revelation, and believed that all other faiths, including most mainstream Christians, had it wrong, and that we alone, all 60,000 of us worldwide, knew the truth. That's capital T Truth. I was about 11 years old and sitting through a particularly boring exhortation when I started thumbing through the book of Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. We were really into Bible marking, so I had all sorts of coloured pens and pencils inside my leather-bound Bible case, and I started colouring the word justice in pink, if my memory serves me correct. And the passages started to stack up. The God of Isaiah was obsessed with justice for the poor, the widows, the fatherless, the stranger in the land. When the sermon finished and we stood up for the memorial hymn that prepares the baptised members to take the emblems, that is communion, I looked around at my white middle-class church and my world began to shift. I was the smart kid, the annoying kind that would be doing my Sunday school exam upside down in a car and still walking away with a high mark. I dueled with Lorna Kruger, a girl in my Sunday school class, for years to see who could memorize the longest scripture the fastest. My dad was an amazing illustrator and inherited some of those genes, so often I had the prettiest Sunday school projects and Bible marking sheets that I would paste inside my Bible with much pride. So I evolved into a preteen that was on fire for the Lord with a million questions and endless curiosity about faith. I was obsessed, zealous, and desperate to belong. Which was funny, because wasn't this faith community nearly all my family? How did it not feel like I belonged in this thing that I had known my entire life? The only thing I had ever really known. Say. 
I tell you all this because it's the backdrop of a little story, a song that is very much about 30 years of faith deconstruction and reconstruction. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because that is out there on many, many podcasts, most notably the Heathen Podcast. You can head to my website and go to the media tab and scroll down to podcast to get a glimpse of the many places I have told bits and pieces of this story. But this is the wound at the very centre of this song, that my fundamentalist religious upbringing not only taught me to reject others, but parts of myself that were essential to my belonging and my quest for unconditional love. In brief, this journey took me out of the conservative side of Christadelphia at 20 when I discovered a whole world of liberal ecclesias that I had not known of. In my mid-twenties, a friend gave me Rob Bell's Velvet Elvis and Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. I became an avid weekly listener of Mars Hill Bible Church podcasts. It was through one of those Rob Bell sermons about the power of words and language that I first encountered Robert Farrakh upon, and these words that Rob quoted. What we are watching for is a party. And that party is not just down the street, make up its mind when to come to us. It's already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes and laughing its way up to our cellar stairs. Its unknown day or hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It is all part of the divine mark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to check and see if her wedding present china has been chipped. He's a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him, but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. I discovered Christian music and in 2009 put out my own EP of Christian tunes and stepped out into the mainstream Christian scene in Australia, garnering a number one spot on iTunes for my single Lead Me Lord. I also won the Uniting Church's songwriting competition for Alpha and Omega and signed with Jeff Bullock's publisher. In 2011 and in my early 30s, I moved to NYC with my ex-wife and finally got out of the Christadelphian world. I was honestly pretty exhausted from decades of volunteer work, because there is no paid clergy, and having produced half a dozen albums and built a nationwide network of artists inside that community. I googled churches like Rob Bell NYC, having no idea that Rob's book, Love Wins had been a scandalous release in the US, and through Aussie contacts, end up walking through the doors of Forefront Church in Manhattan in early December 2011. Within weeks, I was leading worship on stage and identified by the staff as a candidate to help them plant a church in Brooklyn. And by the end of January, they offered me that role, and I began working out of their Gramercy offices in May 2012. My boss and lead pastor, Jonathan Williams, took me on a fundraising trip to Lexington, Kentucky, and I felt like I wanted to come clean about where I was at theologically. I was still heavily deconstructing and wrestling with so many key Christian beliefs. I was nervous, but when I raised my concerns, he basically said, me too, and articulated that he struggled to believe and that he wanted to build a community around that sort of honesty. One of the first books we read together as a staff was Richard Raw's Breathing Underwater, which used the 12-step program to talk about recovery and finding authenticity in spirituality. At this point, I identified strongly with Franciscan theology and universalism and was reading anything I could get my hands on, like Brennan Manning, Richard Raw, Henry Nouwen, and the aforementioned Robert Farrakhapon. Three months after our church launched in the fall of 2012, my boss's father came out as transgender, and Paula Stone Williams was pushed out of her role as chairman of the board for the church planning organization that started Forefront Brooklyn. Eventually, our scrappy little startup church became the first open and affirming evangelical church in New York, and I was and am very, very proud to be part of that story. Jonathan published his first book two years ago called She's My Dad, A Father's Transition and a Son's Redemption. 
As my own marriage fell apart and I finished up working for Forefront in NYC in 2018, I went and lived with Paula and worked alongside her and my friend Heather Lynn at Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Maybe I could have said all of this in a shorter, more concise way, but I wanted to touch on all the points that make it into this song, an expansive belief in theology and a progressive stance that means that everyone belongs, no matter your race, creed, gender, color, sexual orientation, social class, or whatever box people want to put you in. You are loved and you belong, period. A little story is born on the 8th of July 2016, the exact same day as an eye for an eye. In the middle of a severe burnout from work, grieving a miscarriage and the ending of the creative partnership with Lindsay Luff, I took off 10 days to escape to Lake Hapakong in New Jersey. I wrote the song in one sitting on a friend's nylon string guitar that was missing a D string. Here's the voice memo from the day I wrote it. A few days later, I started working on a demo of it, but was so frustrated and ended up creating a crazy dance version of it, complete with auto-tuned vocals. Here's a sneak peek of that. Ooh, we told a little story, a little story about your love, with children's books about all Noah's Ark and the flood. We told a little story about the world that you created in all the seven days we took it literally. As I talked about before on the Count episode, I played my first show in America under the Ben Grace name on September 4, 2016, and this newly written song was the first song of the set. I was excited about how the song told my childhood faith story and defiantly talked about where I was at now, and felt like I didn't know too many artists articulating this kind of deconstruction journey in their music. There is a live multi-track recording of that first show somewhere in a box in an attic in Jersey that I will probably never ever see again. The song became a staple of my Ben Grace sets for the next year as I developed into an Americana artist, but always sat in a weird place that never quite felt like I found the right sound for it. Here's a recording from Rockwood Music Hall in early 2018 from a solo piano set with Rob Hecht on fiddle. We wove a little fable We told a little lie We taught our little children That their little sins condemn them all to die
I went back and forth demoing this song, opening it in January 2019, and then again in May 2019, and still nothing felt right. I'd spoken to both Paul Diemer and another amazing buddy of mine, Caleb Paxton, from the band Iron Bloom, about producing the song, but without a firm idea of the direction the song would take, it languished unfinished. Karen and I spent Christmas 2019 and New Year's in Eugene, Oregon with her family. You know, before the world ended. It was there on her parents' dining room table when I had a quiet afternoon to myself that I finally found a direction. That was on January 2nd, 2020, which makes this the very last song that was worked on for the record. There were three things that unlocked my imagination and made me feel like I had a direction. Ticking clock sound. Some swirling pedal steel FX from Josh Grange that he had recorded at New York Lullaby. And the high 80s piano sound. So I found some drum samples that head in the right direction and demoed up some MIDI guitar, bass and other bits and pieces. I didn't even replace the auto-tune vocals of the original demo in the first incarnation of this version, which bothered Paul Diemer to no end. We got back to San Diego and one of my best Aussie friends, Ari, was in town for a week and then we moved houses on February 1st and then a month later, COVID hit. In all that chaos, it took me a minute to come back to the tune. So in late April, I prepped the file to send off to Paul Ekberg to drum on it. I'd worked with Paul on a number of other songs on the record, and I knew I wanted a big, dirty sound on it. In my notes to him, I mentioned that I had pictured this classic Springsteen groove, or a big, open, contemporary country tune, and I included my good buddy and touring mate Daniel Dietrich's song, Fourth of July, as a reference. Paul sent back some first draft ideas, and I knew we instantly had the chief cornerstone of the track. Having used his song as a reference, I thought it'd be fun to ask my friend Dan to put some guitars down on the track, and when I sent him Paul's first draft drums, he immediately sent me back a wall of first draft guitars that pushed it in a slightly Reiner Adams direction. I sent these back to Paul so that when he tracked the final version of the drums, he was using Dan's guitar energy to bounce off. Even though it's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, the fact that both parts were evolving at the same time and influencing each other brought a bunch of energy to this track. When Dan and I had toured together, the final night was in Dan's hometown of South Bend, Indiana. He'd recruited a bunch of his buddies to join us on stage for a few tracks, and one of those guys was the amazing Matt Esau. Dan suggested that Matt put down bass on this tune, and I'm so glad he did, because I love the melodic shape he found in this driving tune. Most of the other bells and whistles on this tune I had already found in the original demo, and they stayed as they were. This is the only track on the record that I had the guts to record the vocal at home in my closet converted to a vocal booth. I'm proud of the fact that I took this song by the horns and wrestled down the final arrangement. 
it does feel a little out of place genre-wise on the record, harkening back to a slightly more 80s era of Americana music. But I really wanted to include it on the record because it felt like the beginning of the story and a statement that I wanted to make about who I am and where I'd come from. It was actually Karen's idea to tuck it onto the album after the two lullabies as if it had its own particular and peculiar place in the story. I want to leave you with an encouragement. If you've had a similar upbringing to me, you probably know just how hard it is to find yourself and find your way home. I read this astonishing book by Toka Patona last year called Belonging, and I highly, highly recommend it. I feel like this excerpt about false belonging sums up why I wrote this song and why it felt so necessary to have this song on my first record. A longing for community and purpose is so powerful that it can drive us to join groups, relationships or systems of belief that, to our diminished or divided self, give the false impression of belonging. But places of false belonging grant us conditional membership, requiring us to cut parts of ourselves off in order to fit in. While false belonging can be useful and instructive for a time, the soul becomes restless when it reaches a glass ceiling, a restriction that prevents us from advancing. We may shrink back from this limitation for a time, but as we grow into our truth, the invisible boundary closes in on us, our devotion to the group mind weakens. Your rebellion is a sign of health. It is the way of nature to shatter and reconstitute. Anything or anyone who denies your impulse to grow must either be revolutionized or relinquished. Hope you enjoyed the background of the story. Here's a song in full. We told a little story A little story about your love The children's books about old Noah's Ark And the flood We told a little story About the world that you created In only seven days We took it literally
story than before Every daughter, every son, and every human one of yours See the bigger glory A gentler, humbler kind of love That's willing to stand with the hurt and broken Every one of us I Tell a bigger story I Sing a bigger song You see that God's not bigger than Not concerned in right or wrong Yes, this love is bigger than Deeper, wider, higher than So big that all the universe belongs So big that all the universe belongs Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of As If Words Could Heal the Wounds. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, send it to someone who grew up in a fundamentalist religion. What could go wrong? The record is out now, so go stream it, heart it, save it, playlist it, or even better, buy it wherever you like to get your music. Back next week with the second season of the podcast and a peek behind the curtain of Story and Tune's brand new single, Maybe My Next Christmas. Bye for now.